minutes ago. I'm looking real good in my passport photo. Amateur Traveler episode 252. Today, the Amateur Traveler talks about western towns, caves, and giant presidents as we go to the Black Hills of South Dakota. Welcome to the Amateur Traveler. I'm your host, Chris Christensen. Before we get into this week's interview, I do have one news story for you. There's a new tour company that's doing a nudist tour of the Adriatic Sea. Now, I'm not a nudist, nor am I likely to become one soon, but the idea of not having to pack a lot of extra clothes for a cruise was enticing until I saw you still have to dress for dinner. I'd like to welcome to the show Fred, who's coming to us from Fresno and is coming to talk to us about the Black Hills. Fred, welcome to the show. Thank you, Chris. Glad to be here. So the Black Hills, there are, I think, in the world a couple different places that go by the name Black Hills. Which ones are we talking about? These are the Black Hills in South Dakota. Uh, Most people have heard, at least in the United States, have heard of Mount Rushmore, and that's in the Black Hills. It's Mm -hmm. an isolated mountain range in the prairies of South Dakota. It's about 100 miles east of the Rocky Mountains. And why would somebody go to the Black Hills? Well, interestingly, it was never on our radar screen as a place to travel to. But uh, the year before we went, we went in 2007. The year before we went, some good friends of ours uh, did a driving trip from California back east across the northern United States. And they spent about a week in the Black Hills and said it was the best part of any vacation they had ever done. And when somebody that we know and trust says something like that, we think, well, that's probably a good reason to go. And so we started doing some research, and I knew about Mount Rushmore but didn't really know much else and found that within a very small area, the Black Hills are about 75 miles by 40 miles in kind of an oval shape. There is just a bunch of things to do there and see. My wife and I are both interested in history, the natural landscape, and it's there in spades. Do a little more detail then. What kind of history and what kind of landscape? Well, the history starts with the Native Americans. The Black Hills were considered sacred to the uh, Lakota Sioux and some of the other tribes in the area. And uh, the Western history starts with the migration of the eastern United States uh, citizens across the prairies. They were held out of the Black Hills by treaty for a while. But then there was a suspicion of gold and then gold was found and that kind of ended that. And so the the miners came in. There's some old mining towns in the north end of the Black Hills uh, that are pretty famous. George Armstrong Custer of uh, Civil War fame and Little Bighorn infamy led one of the early expeditions into the Black Hills. To He wasn't supposed to be searching for gold, but really that's what they were doing. <laughs> and <laughs> Because you know when there's mineral wealth, it attracts a lot of people. Absolutely. So uh, it has that kind of a history. And then as far as natural landscape, They're called the Black Hills because they look black from a distance, because they're heavily forested and they're totally surrounded by prairie. And so as you're driving in from a distance, you see this black mass rising above the horizon. And because they're isolated, you either fly into Rapid City or you drive from quite a distance to get there. And we actually did this as part of a larger driving trip. But as far as the beautiful natural things in the area, there are probably a hundred caves in the Black Hills, hmm. and about a dozen of them are developed so that you can tour them. We went to two of the caves. We went to Jewel Cave National Monument and Wind Cave National Park. The Black Hills are also right next to Devil's Tower, Wyoming, which was in close encounters of the 
what was that? Close Encounters of the First Kind, I guess it was called the movie. The, the, the with, third kind. I think we lost the third two kinds kind, there. Yeah. Close Encounters of the Third Kind. It's been a while since I've seen the movie. And then also, that's on the west of the Black Hills, and then not too far east of the Black Hills is Badlands National Park. Mm-hmm. And my wife and I both carry national park passports, and we like to get them stamped and visit all the national parks and national monuments that we can. I carry one myself. So as we did our research, we found there was there was quite a bit to do. And I know one of the questions that you ask on your shows is what kind of guidebooks that you use. And for our domestic travel, which is most of the travel we do, we start with a AAA guidebook. And the AAA guidebook for North and South Dakota has about a 25-page section on the Black Hills, which is a huge section to devote to one small area. For those guides, that's interesting. Yeah, and so we started there, and then once we had kind of figured out the main things we wanted to see, I, I also look at maps and so on. I also get onto Google Earth and start looking at the photographs people have posted through Panorimo to see what interesting things I might find that I haven't seen on a map or in the guidebook. So that's kind of how we planned our trip. And now that you have been there, what kind of itinerary or route would you recommend? Well, what we ended up doing, we actually started an 1,800-mile driving trip in Denver. And we did that because we had some things to do in Denver. But then we drove up through central Colorado and eastern Wyoming. And we approached the Black Hills initially from the Wyoming side. So we came up the west side, looped around the north, and then back down through the south. So we did kind of a horseshoe shape that was distorted. And so the first stop that we had, we spent the night in a bed and breakfast in Newcastle, Wyoming, and 20 miles due east of there is Jewel Cave National Monument. And that's one of the reasons we stayed in Newcastle, so that we could get to Jewel Cave very easily. And so our plan was to uh, do Jewel Cave in the morning and then finish that up, grab some lunch there, and then go to Devil's Tower, Wyoming in the afternoon. And the Black Hills are small enough that you can hit several venues in one day. And we do a lot of driving trips. It's kind of natural for us. So that's how we had planned it. Uh, Jewel Cave is absolutely spectacular. It's uh, billed as the second longest cave in the world with 146 miles mapped at the time that we were there. It's probably Hmm. more now. And you enter through an elevator, you drive in through the forest, and there's a little visitor center up on a, on a little knob on, on a hill. And you go in there, and they've got a bookstore and so on. And you take the, the elevator down into the cave. It's a bit of a strenuous tour because there's a lot of stairs. But there's a lot of really beautiful formations, draperies and stalactites, stalagmites, uh, all manner of different features. It's just really a beautiful cave. We're not hardcore spelunkers, but if there's a developed cave in the area, we like to go visit that. We've, my wife and I have probably been to 10 or 15 caves in our various travels. Now, I think most people can probably picture the stalactite hanging from the ceiling or the stalagmite coming up from the floor, but I'm not sure that everybody knows what a drapery is. Well, a, a drapery is a thin thing hanging from the ceiling. There's one, I, I, I think it was in Jewel Cave, that they call cave bacon. And it looks like a giant piece of bacon hanging down from the ceiling. It has the striped coloring like a piece of bacon. It's relatively thin. It might be half an inch thick, and it might be several feet high, and it might be dozens of feet long in some cases. Okay, so a long, thin stalactite. Yeah, yeah. your typical stalactite is more circular, Mm -hmm. and these are long and narrow. And lots of beautiful colors. It's really well lit up. It's really well done. I think our biggest disappointment at Jewel Cave is our plan was to eat lunch when we were done with the tour, and we come out and we find that there's no food there. Oh. (laughs) There was a vending machine 
and a microwave and a room with a couple of tables in it. And so we got a couple of frozen burritos to hold us over until we could drive the 20 miles back to Newcastle to get real food. And that's the first national monument, national park type facility I've ever been to that didn't have a place you could grab some food. And it's relatively far from anything else. There's no restaurants in the area or anything like that. And so hmm. that was a bit annoying. <laughs> so worth the trip, but pack a lunch. Pack a lunch or do it, you know, like I say, we did this in the morning and then we went out to Devil's Tower, Wyoming in the afternoon. And you're also driving through some really pretty countryside. Uh, it's not just going from place to place, but there's a lot of pretty things to see. For instance, not far from Devil's Tower, we saw a farm that had llamas. And okay. so we stopped and took a look at the llamas and, and so on, and that's kind of fun. But uh, Devil's Tower you can see from quite a ways. It's about 1,200 feet above the surrounding prairie. And so you can see it from miles away. If you've ever seen columnar basalt, like Devil's Post Pile, uh, in California, I know there's some other areas around the world. It's a huge igneous intrusion, and the ground around it has eroded. And so you have this just tall column made up of this multi-sided basalt columns. And you can get very close to it. There's a trail that goes all the way around, not at the base, but around the base of Devil's Tower. And so you can walk, get different views of it. You're not allowed to climb it. Uh, people have done it, and it's not that easy to get down from. They've actually had to rescue people with a helicopter on top because they were, you know, idiots climbed up to the top. But if you were to climb it, you would have to use technical climbing like they do in Yosemite and that sort of thing. Well, and of course, we learn in the movies that the reason they don't want you to climb it is that's where the aliens land. So Exactly. Yeah, you don't want to mess up the landing strip up there, so that would be a problem. <laughs> but it's, it's really pretty, and it's in the midst of this farm and rangeland, and all of a sudden, here's this big thing sticking up out of the countryside. And so we, we spent the afternoon there, and from there, uh, got back on the interstate and drove into um, South Dakota to the town of Spearfish, which is at the very north end of the Black Hills. And Spearfish is a town probably of about four or 5,000 people. It's a really nice, uh, well-kept uh, little town. And in the south end of the town is a really nice fish hatchery. And I'm not really into fish hatcheries. I think I told you that in my email to you. But it's this really beautiful park. It's called the D.C. Booth Historical National Fish Hatchery. And it was established in 1896. And there's a parkland oh. around it. There's picnic tables. Uh, it's just really a gorgeous little spot. And you can buy fish food and toss it in the water. When we were there, we were there on a Saturday. So there were a lot of kids uh, with their parents hanging around the fish hatchery. And... We really intended just to drive by and wave at it. We ended up spending about two hours there. They've got a little gift shop and place you can get some books and so on. And we really like spearfish. One of the things my wife and I do when we travel is we ask ourselves, could we live here or not? And spearfish, minus the winter weather, we could live there. We thought it was that nice of a place. I don't know if you can take South Dakota without the winter weather, though. No, no. It's probably with a biodome you could do it. I believe that's but, like taking Fresno without the summer. Yes, that's true. But it was it was just a nice little town. And then from Spearfish, in, we got off the interstate and headed through the north end of the Black Hills. So the first thing that we did heading directly out of Spearfish was get into Spearfish Canyon. It's a small, narrow canyon. It's about 20 miles long, the area that we traveled. It's probably a couple hundred feet wide, a couple hundred feet deep. 
some interesting geologic formations, and the roadway is the National Scenic Byway and runs along Spearfish Creek. And one of the reasons I wanted to take this route besides the interstate is there are two waterfalls along the, Actually, there's three, but we only got to two of them, two waterfalls, and I'm a big waterfall hound. Uh, another thing my wife rolls her eyes at. But there's one called Bridal Veil Falls. It's not far south of Spearfish. And then Rufflock Falls, which is off a little side road. And Bridal Veil is right on the side of the road. You, you can get out of your car, and it's probably 30, 40 feet away. And Rufflock Falls has a nice uh, man-made viewing platform that you can see. And I'd say Bridal Veil is probably 80 feet tall, and Rufflock is probably about 40 feet tall. And we spent some time there. Just kind of hanging out, we'd brought some things to picnic and so on. And then from there, we headed into the old mining district. And the first town that we came to is Lead, which is the home of the Homestake Gold Mine. And this is a huge open pit mine that also has an underground mine beneath it. And if you go to Google Earth, you can see the Homestake Mine. It's probably, oh, three quarters of a mile across and hmm. probably as deep. So the uh, underground mine is the older one and the, the pit no, mine No, actually, is the, the underground mine is underneath the pit. Okay. It actually goes deeper than the pit. And we didn't actually take the tour of the mine because you can stand on a city park against the fence and look right down into the pit. So there was uh, we didn't really feel a need to go take the tour. But you can see the thing. It's huge. It's deep. There's uh, You can see some of the trucks moving around. The open pit mines tend to have their traffic in kind of a spiral pattern going down to the bottom. And so you can see these spiral roads that go down. And that was, that was really interesting looking. There's also a mining museum right outside the mine. And they do offer tours in the summertime of the mine. And then a couple of miles away is the town of Deadwood, which is a famous in Wild West lore. Sure. Mm-hmm. It's, again, an old mining town. It's tucked into a narrow canyon, so it really only has one main street. Both Leed and Deadwood have a lot of really nicely preserved old buildings. They've really kept the towns up nice. They know that they're tourist destinations, and so they do a good job of maintaining that old flavor. Deadwood is also the, the place where Wild Bill Hickok was killed in 1876, and his grave and a couple of other famous peoples uh, are buried in the Mount Moriah Cemetery up above Deadwood. And if it hadn't have been so warm, we probably would have hiked it. My wife's not that much of a warm-weather hiker, so we just drove up to the top where the where the visitor center is for the cemetery. It has a nice view of Deadwood from up there. And you can see some of the graves near the parking lot, but Wild Bill Hickok and Calamity Jane and a few others are about a half mile into the cemetery. Nice Calamity Jane was there also. Okay. Yes, yes, Calamity Jane is there. Deadwood now has about, I don't know, half a dozen to a dozen casinos. They, were, they reestablished gambling, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. But we don't gamble, so we didn't stop to do that. And then from Deadwood, we traveled some back roads to come in on the west side of Rapid City. And as I mentioned, Rapid City is the one big city in the area. It's about 60,000 people. It has the airport if you want to fly in to see the Black Hills. And also, if you're looking for things that the little towns don't have, you'll find it in Rapid City. And one of the reasons we came in on the west side of Rapid City is there is a really beautiful reproduction church called the Chapel in the Hills, also known as the Stavkirke Chapel. And it's an exact reproduction of the Borgen Stavkirke in Lardal, Norway. And it's just a really gorgeous building. It probably only seats about 50 or 60 people, but it's all wood. Mm-hmm. I don't even think there's any nails in it. I think it's all done with wood. 
and it's probably 40 feet high, probably a 60 by 40 footprint, something like that, maybe a little bit larger. Really beautiful grounds, a lot of flowers. They have an old Norwegian style log cabin on the grounds that I guess an early settler to the area had built. And the chapel is maintained by donations. There's a little bookstore there and there's a place where they take donations. And it's just a really pretty site. I had first heard about that years ago when National Geographic did an article about wood-staved churches in Norway. And some of these old wood-staved churches are huge. They're the size of a modern church. And there was a reference to this little chapel that had been built in Rapid City, and I just kind of kept that in the back of my mind. So when we were planning our trip, I found it again and said, oh, we need to stop there. Uh, Rapid City was actually a pretty nice town. It has been variously called Vapid City. It kind of has a reputation as being <laughs> just a place you know, where all the tourists come first. But actually, I thought it was a pretty nice city. And I'm guessing it's not named for the pace of life there? No, it's, it's named for Rapid Creek. Okay. Which actually, to me, did not look like it was moving that fast. But we were there in midsummer, so <laughs> the water level was down. On this particular trip, we stayed in bed and breakfast every place that we went. And we stayed in a bed and breakfast two nights on the south end of Rapid City. An older gentleman whose wife had passed away and his kids were married and gone. And from his back porch, you could see Mount Rushmore about 10 miles away. He had small telescope and binoculars that you could use to see it. And that was pretty fun. When we plan these trips, my wife finds all the bed and breakfast. And she had found this one online and found that he had a view of Mount Rushmore and thought it would be a good choice. But we spent one of the evenings there in downtown. There was a music festival. This was on a Saturday night. We wandered some of the shops. They have some really interesting shops that have Native American artwork, besides the touristy stuff. But I mean some real Native American artwork, some very expensive Native American antique things. Mm -hmm. And uh, just, I don't know if, if you've ever been to Fresno, but it does not have a walking downtown. I have been to Fresno, but I, I try and avoid it. <laughs> yes, well, <laughs> that's why we don't live in downtown. But Fresno doesn't have a downtown that is usable in the evenings. But Rapid City is one of those places where the downtown is vibrant in the evening. And we went down and had dinner at a restaurant and then walked around downtown. One of the really cool things in Rapid City that I thought was really neat, and, and I hadn't heard of this before until we got there, is they have life-size statues of the U.S. presidents in pedestrian mode scattered around the downtown. Oh, fun. And they're on the sidewalks. They're, they're made of bronze. And so there's George Washington up to when we were there. I think they had Bill Clinton. I think George W. Bush was being made. We were there huh. in 2007. <laughs> And it's just kind of fun. There's a pretty wide William Howard Taft. There's a little bitty Coolidge and an even smaller James Madison. And uh, that's just kind of a neat thing that they've done there. And, and being near Mount Rushmore, it was pretty appropriate. And I thought it was really well done. One of the things we did out of Rapid City is we headed east a little bit, probably about 70 miles, to a couple of places that are one would be on everybody's radar screen and one probably wouldn't. Uh, the one on everybody's radar screen would be Badlands National Park. And the Badlands, there's actually more than one Badlands in this area. North Dakota has Badlands, South Dakota, Nebraska. Mm -hmm. And these are areas that are very heavily eroded, layered sedimentary rock, multicolors, often a lot of fossils. Badlands is probably the most spectacular of all of them in this area. There's also some wildlife, there's deer, there's bison, there's a bunch of prairie dogs, actually in this whole part of the country, there's a lot of prairie dogs that we saw. 
and so that was an interesting place to visit and drive around and take a look at the features and so on. There's a visitor center with a good museum in it showing a lot of the fossils and things like that. But the place that wouldn't be on everybody's radar screen is a place called Walled Rug. And it's in the little bitty town of Wall, South Dakota. <laughs> and, and the reason that we went to Wall is because that's the fastest way to get the Badlands off the interstate. Mm-hmm. But Wall Drug is less than 1,000 people, and half of them have to work at Wall Drug. Wall Drug started as a little bitty pharmacy, and over the years, they turned themselves into what they bill as the world's largest drug store. They occupy an entire city block. It's mostly shopping. You know, there's a lot of touristy kind of stuff. They've got a couple of restaurants in there. In the back, they have a jackalope model that you can sit on that's probably <laughs> about seven or eight feet high. They have an art museum, has a lot of Native American and Western art in it. They've got a small stuffed bison that you can get your picture taken with. They've got a one of these, I call them a flat fountain. You see them in a lot of parks where you have a flat piece of ground and the water squirts up through the holes and the kids play in it. And it's set to music. And so the water's going on and off while the kids are playing and the music is going. And it was about 95 degrees that day, so it was nice to have the water going. But it was just kind of a hoot. You know, it's really kitschy. It's very touristy. But, you know, it's one I can now cross off my bucket list. Well, I want to say (laughs) that Waldrug, as far as roadside attractions that have made a name on road trips in the U.S., probably is up there in one of the top six, top three sort of locations. And as I recall, they just started by offering cold drinks of water to people who were driving by and then started selling more and more things. That's correct. It was was a way to grow their business in addition to helping out the traveler, and ice water doesn't really cost very much. Right. And, of course, in that part of the country, I think they were advertising at least 100 miles away. I understand that there were billboards, most of them since taken down, that actually went out of South Dakota. <laughs> so even further than that, I think there were I think there were billboards for a couple of hundred miles at one time. Interesting. But it was it was famous and, and actually our friends who had gone to the Black Hills have told us about it and they thought it was it was kinda crazy fun. So now there's one other national area there, I want to say national park. Yes. Did you get to Buffalo Gap National Grassland? No, we did we well the visitor center and the administration is in Wall, mm-hmm. but we didn't get that far. Got it. Our goal was to get back, actually, partly because we ended up with a hailstorm that afternoon. Mm. You know, we don't get much hail in California. Uh, this was <laughs> this was smaller than golf ball size, and I thought our little Kia was going to turn into wrinkled aluminum foil, but it actually held up pretty well. But yeah, that was kind of exciting. I'm not used to Midwestern weather. But anyway, that was an interesting day. We thought about getting down to the grasslands, but with the time we spent in Wall and the time we spent in the Badlands looking at the erosions, we didn't get down there. Okay. After that, we went back to Rapid City and had some dinner, and then the next day was our trip to Mount Rushmore. And you can actually see Mount Rushmore from various places along the drive. We could see it off on the distance from the south end of Rapid City, and at various places as you're getting closer, you can catch glimpses of it. And you're traveling along two-lane roads, and the traffic isn't too bad until you get within about four or five miles of Mount Rushmore, and then it looks like Yosemite Valley in the summertime. You're in the middle of nowhere, and there's a huge traffic jam. But that's kind of the way it is because Mount Rushmore is very, very popular, even though you're far from anything big. Uh, and we were there on a Monday, so it wasn't a busy day, but it was it, the traffic was pretty heavy getting in there. Fortunately, there was enough parking, so that wasn't a problem. Now, one of the reasons that we plan to hit Mount Rushmore in the morning is the the face carvings face east. 
And if you want good photography, you want the sun behind you. Oh, okay. And so mm-hmm. That's a place to visit in the morning. We actually got there about 10 in the morning, and we probably left around 2 in the afternoon. So once we got past lunchtime, the lighting angles weren't as good for photography. But there's one of the interesting things, I'd never really paid much attention to this, but all the pictures you see of Mount Rushmore are basically just the heads of the four presidents, Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, and Teddy Roosevelt. But they're actually relatively small faces compared to the size of the mountain. So when you show up at the visitor center at Mount Rushmore, you're not looking straight at the faces. They're way up on a mountain about 2,000 feet above you to the top. And so if you want a good picture of just the faces, you need a long lens. You need a telephoto lens of some sort. Your, your standard lenses that most people have are going to get the whole mountain, but they're not going to get just the faces. And that was something that surprised me. But fortunately, I carried a good selection of lenses so I could do what I needed to do photographically. But there's a lot of good vantage points to see the carvings. And then there's also a trail that leads west out of the visitor center that will take you beneath the mountain kind of give you a looking up the nose view of the carvings. And <laughs> along that trail, there's a museum that shows how um, uh, Mr. Borgland, I can't remember his first name, but the guy who carved the statues, where he made his models of the various faces and where they built some of the equipment to do this and so on. And it's a really good trail, a few steps here and there, but it's not like wilderness trekking. It's really a pretty good stroll. And they've got a really big cafeteria there, so you can get a good lunch there unlike Jewel Cave. So we spent up into the early afternoon there and then left and went to the Crazy Horse Memorial, which is probably about 10 miles west of Mount Rushmore. I was wondering if you had gotten there. Yeah, and and Crazy Horse was commissioned by the Lakota Sioux to honor uh, Chief Crazy Horse. When it's done, it's still a work in progress and it's been going on for several decades. It will be the world's largest statue. It'll be about 560 feet high and about 640 feet long. It's absolutely huge. It will dwarf the faces on Mount Rushmore several times over. Right now, they've got the outline of it carved, and basically what you're going to have is the head of Crazy Horse, the head of his horse that he's sitting on, and his hand pointing east over the head of his horse. And so it's absolutely huge. They have the basic outline done. They're working on some of the detailed features. I'm kind of surprised it's taken this long because Mount Rushmore took about 14 years, and I think Crazy Horse is coming on 30 or something like that. It's it's been going a long time. Hmm. They have an outstanding Native American museum there, really, really nicely done. Crazy Horse is a little bit pricey, but that's part of how they're paying for the carvings. But one of the things my wife and I discussed while we were there is why don't the Native American casinos in this country find a way to chip in since they're, they're making enough money on their gambling winnings that they could probably fund to finish this thing and get it done in our lifetimes. But still, it was interesting, and I thought worth going to. It's going to be spectacular when it's done. And uh, then from there, we went into the town of Custer. We actually stayed at a bed and breakfast on a little ranch outside of Custer. And Custer is named for George Armstrong Custer, uh, as I mentioned. In fact, the bed and breakfast that we stayed in is in the same little valley that the Custer party camped back in the late 1800s, this 1872 or 74, something like that. And it's in the same little valley that this bed and breakfast was in. And as I mentioned to you earlier, before we got into the interview, I'm an amateur astronomer, and some of the darkest skies that we saw when we were in South Dakota was in this little bed and breakfast. Absolutely stunning. And I brought a pair of binoculars with me so I could at least scan the Milky Way with my binoculars. But just, just a really pretty little area. 
And Custer is one of these touristy towns like you find all over this area. And they have something called the Flintstones theme park. <laughs> we did not go into it, but we drove to it so we could get a picture of it. And it is a campground and theme park based around the Flintstones. And in my age group, I'm 52. The Flintstones were what we kind of grew up on. And if we had had kids with us, I think we would have probably stayed there. Uh, it looked like a lot of fun. But Custer for us was just basically a place to stay as we were heading down to the rest of our trip. Uh, the first place that we went to out of the town of Custer was Custer State Park, which is a large state park. It's probably 100 square miles. And it has the largest free-ranging bison herd in the U.S. There's about 1,500 head. And we were able to see a few of them. It was still fairly warm. And the few bison we did see seemed to be kind of hanging out in the shade where there was forest. But there's also some wild donkeys and deer and prairie dogs and a bunch of other different kinds of animals there. In fact, we saw the most prairie dogs in Custer State Park. Just a really pretty area, rolling hillside, forest with some prairie mixed in. There's a lake in Custer State Park called Sylvan Lake that was used as part of a national treasure. Oh, national treasure too? Okay. The lake that was behind them when they're sticking their hands in this hole in the rock behind Mount Rushmore. Uh-huh. That was filmed at Sylvan Lake. It has some really pretty geology around it, some really pretty rock formations and things like that. And so we stopped there, took a few pictures, and did a little snack. We, we learned after our little uh, fiasco at Jewel Cave to carry a little bit more food with us than we normally do on these kinds of driving trips. And we stopped at the lake and had a little picnic there, and it was really nice. And then we went to the other, what you might say, anchor park in this area, which is Wind Cave National Park. And Wind Cave is on the south side of Custer State Park. And Wind Cave is billed as the fourth longest cave in the world. It's a little bit shorter than Jewel Cave. It's about 130 miles mapped. The tours that are available for most people do not get you to the most beautiful formations, unfortunately. I thought Jewel Cave ended up being a prettier cave as far as what we could tour. Wind Cave has some areas that are not open to the public that are spectacular. They've, they've got pictures posted so you can see it. But I thought that the, the portion of Wind Cave that we toured was just not as interesting as Jewel Cave. Still worth doing, but it was just not quite the same. I, th I thought Jewel Cave was really the jewel on this trip. And then uh, at this point, we're near the southeast corner of the Black Hills, and we're headed down towards our last stop in the Black Hills, which is the town of Hot Springs. And Hot Springs is, as you might imagine, built around a hot springs, although we never did actually find it. But it has a couple of very interesting things there. One is a place called Mammoth Site. And there was an area where hundreds of mammoths went to die. And hmm. there are full skeletons and individual bones and multi-layers. And the whole archaeological site, or actually I guess you would say paleontological site, is indoors. And so you can go inside. It's air-conditioned, which is really nice for the people that are doing the digging. And they have elevated catwalks, and you can watch the paleontologists actually working at gradually extricating these bones from the dirt. And we probably spent about two hours there just watching and looking at the bones, looking at the museum there. And I would say the, the room that you're in is probably 150 feet long and probably about 75 feet wide, so it's a big place. And just really interesting, these are... Um, it's, it's just really well designed for observers. 
and we thought that was that was fun. There's also a national cemetery in um, Hot Springs, and these are scattered around the country where uh, veterans are buried and so on. And it sits up on a hill above Hot Springs. So if you go up there, there, there's some monuments up there, and you go look out over the town. It's not a huge town, probably, again, about 4,000 people. And the other thing that attracted me is right in downtown is about a 50-foot natural waterfall coming over one of the hillsides. And so that was that was kind of fun. We found one other waterfall on our trip that was a little bit south of Hot Springs that was just not really much of a waterfall. It was only about five feet high and just not a very interesting place. But we found three really good waterfalls on this trip. So that was the basics of our Black Hills itinerary. As I mentioned, we went around, started on the west side, went up to the north, down through the east side. We spent about six and a half days in the Black Hills. And it is one of the places I would like to go back to. Some places that we travel, good to go once, probably not going to go again, but I would go back to the Black Hills to, okay. to re-see some things and also to see some things we didn't get to do. Now, this show is already going a little long, so I'm probably going to cut some of the questions that I usually ask. Maybe for the places to stay, if you could send me a list of the bed and breakfast that you went sure. to and the ones you liked, we can put those in the show notes. Um, okay. I think we've already done side trips in that. How about this? We we talked about the Flintstones and we talked about some other uh, funny things. One more thing in that area that you had to laugh and say only in southwest South Dakota. Well, this was interesting. One of the little towns we stopped to have lunch, and honestly, I couldn't tell you which one it was in. When we do trips like this, we try our hardest never to eat in a chain restaurant. About the only time we'll ever do it is near the airport. Interesting. Okay. So we try to find some local place that isn't a chain. And so we're in this little bitty town and it's time for lunch and we see two little diners and one of them is just got a bunch of cars in front and the other one really doesn't. So we figure, well, the better food's probably at the diner with all the cars in front. So we find a place to park and we go into the diner and we order our food and we look around and all the tables are taken. And there's one table that has four seats with two people at it. And this older couple, probably in their late seventies offers us their two seats there are two extra seats. And they, they had just started their lunch, so it's not like they were getting up to leave. And we got to talking with them, and they live about 100 miles east of the Black Hills out in the prairie. And they said every week they come into this little diner to get lunch. And I just thought that I don't even remember what town. I don't remember what diner, but it's obviously a great advertisement for the diner. And they were just, the, they were just fun people. You know, getting old is a, is a mindset. And they may have been old in age, but they weren't old mentally. We just really had a fun lunch with them. And that's the kind of thing that doesn't happen much in California, unless you're in one of the smaller isolated towns out in the middle of nowhere. But we found the people on this trip just to be super friendly, willing to help you out, however. But to have people offer us a seat, and they've driven 100 miles for their weekly lunch, it was just kind of fun. One picture, if you had to pick one from all the ones you took that really stands out from this trip? It would probably be the picture that everyone would take, and that would be a picture of Mount Rushmore. Okay. Because that was really the centerpiece of this trip for us, was to see this monument. But as I go through the photographs, and I realize there were so many really interesting and beautiful things to see, that in terms of natural beauty, it doesn't really stand out. But it was really, to us, the centerpiece of this trip was going to Mount Rushmore, and that's probably what a lot of people would say if they did the same trip, even though there were other places that in many ways were as or more interesting to visit. Any last things that people should know before they do the Black Hills? 
Well, as I mentioned earlier, you really have two choices to get to the Black Hills. You either fly into Rapid City, and that usually means going through a major hub. For instance, we could have flown Fresno, Denver, Rapid City. And if you're coming from other places, unless you're really close, you're not going to have a direct flight. Or you have to drive from somewhere. We elected to drive, do a loop out of Denver because we had some other things to do in Denver. We just decided to combine the trips. Plus, there were some things to see between Denver and the Black Hills, which we won't go into. But for most people, they're either going to drive a long distance or they're going to have to do a multi-hop flight to get into Rapid City. And so it's not easy to get to because it's isolated. It's like getting to Yellowstone. There's not an easy way to get to Yellowstone National Park. Okay. Last two questions. All right. Finish this sentence. You really know you're in the Black Hills when what? When the forest around you looks black. <laughs> the, the trees are dark-colored pine trees of various sorts. I think there's some lodgepole, there's some spruce, a few other pines, and it really is a dark forest, but beautiful in its own way, but it was a dark forest. If you had to describe this region in three words, what three words would you use? Very worthwhile. I guess that's two words. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And one thing I should say, I took a pot shot there on Fresno, and I've actually done that once before in the show, and I really got called for it. I should give a little background. I grew up in one of the other big ag towns in California, which is Salinas, and and Fresno and Salinas aren't that far apart, and they're both no. ag towns, and probably and neither culturally one... Culturally not that far apart. No, culturally not that far apart, and neither one gets that much tourism, really, not that big a tourism draw. One is hotter than most people like, and one is colder than most people like, and yes. I grew up in the cold one. <laughs> so. Well, we could do a show on Fresno, and it would take about three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, one of the reasons that we're in Fresno is my dad got transferred here when I was five, and I've spent most of my life here. It's where my friends are, and Yosemite is one hour to the south gate exactly. and two hours to the valley, and that's a pretty good reason to live here. Very good. I have a pool, so the summer is not so bad. <laughs> Fred, thanks so much for coming, the Amateur Traveler, and telling us a little bit about the Black Hills. You're welcome. I really enjoyed it, Chris, and I'll get some of this information off to you so you can uh, add it in. Great. In news from the community, I had an email from Courtney who said, Hi, Chris, I just recently found your podcast. I can't believe I'm so late to the party and I have been loving it. I listen while I'm flying my desk at work and love that your podcast can take me out of the tedium of my desk job. I've been listening to some of your older podcasts and I just listened to episode 176 about Texas. I thought your guest was great talking about my home state. The only thing he didn't mention was how big of a culture football is around here. And since I live here, I was trying to come up with the three words that best describe Texas before you asked him the question, and lo and behold, we had two of the same words. Texas is definitely big, proud, and while he said friendly, I was thinking hot. Anyway, I really wanted to tell you how much I enjoy your podcast and keep up the great work. Thanks, Courtney. Well, thanks, Courtney. If the only thing we forgot is football, we're probably doing better than average. And I'm curious, since Courtney brought it up, how would you describe your home state? And what three words would you use? With that, we're going to wind down this episode of The Amateur Traveler. I've got to wrap this up so I can get it up because I'm taking a plane to Zurich, Switzerland tomorrow to meet up with my wife and do a Rhine River cruise. If you have any questions about The Amateur Traveler, feel free to send me an email to host at amateurtraveler.com or leave a comment on this episode at amateurtraveler.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening. I got to see one more cathedral. I got to sit in one